Hello and welcome to LTC NAC Chat, a podcast brought to you by the American Association of Nurse Assessment Coordination, ANAC. I'm your host, Rebecca, and today I'm here with ANAC Curriculum Development Specialist, Jessie McGill, to answer some of the questions asked during her recent webinar, Strategies for the PDPM Transition and IPAs. Welcome, Jessie. Hi, Rebecca. Thanks for having me today. Glad to have you, Jessie. Here's the first question from our attendees. How will PDPM or the transition impact the timing of signatures for the Medicare recertification? Oh, that's a great question, Rebecca, and one that has come up so frequently during different PDPM trainings. The key here is that physician certifications do not change with the transition to PDPM. PDPM is simply a change to the way we get paid from Medicare for a skilled nursing facility stage. The physician certifications is one of the requirements of Medicare billing, and this is actually in the Medicare Benefit Policy Manual, Chapter 7, and this has the requirements for the certs and research for the extended care stay. And what this manual tells us is that the timing requirements are for the initial certification, it must be obtained at the time of admission or as soon thereafter as reasonable and practicable. The first recertification must be made no later than the 14th day of the inpatient extended care service stay. And a skilled nursing facility can, if optional, have the first recertification timed at the signed at the same time as that initial certification. And then you must have a certification signed by the provider without exceeding 30 days from that prior signature. So essentially there's no change to the physician certifications. And while a lot of people correlated the timing of the certifications with the timing of those scheduled RUGS for PPS assessments, that timing was kind of just coincidental. When we removed the SNF PPS assessment schedule with RUGS 4 to the very simplified assessment schedule with PDPM having just the five day and the required end of Medicare stay discharge assessment, the physician certification timing regulations did not change. So a key thing to note is that you do not need to restart certifications with the transition to PDPM. The resident's Medicare state is continuing and it continues through that transition. And even though how we get paid is going to be different from drugs forward to PDPM, that skilled reason for care, the technical reasons, the physician certifications, all that continues through. And so the only thing that really changes is how we get reimbursed, but the Medicare level of care requirements, physician certification requirements have not changed with the transition to PDPM. Great information, Jesse. We had another very similar question. How will an interrupted stay impact the physician certification schedule? That's a great question and one that's a little bit tricky. So if you have an interrupted stay and the resident came back within that inter interruption window and you're continuing that stay, then you're going to continue that physician certification schedule without change. So when your next certification was due on that calendar date, 
that's when it will still be due. Now, one thing you'll want to really pay close attention to is make sure that you don't have any gaps in that certification coverage, that your next certification was obtained on or before that time frame of the next certification, whether it was by the 14th calendar day from admission or 30 days from the prior certification. And if you do have any gaps in coverage, you will need to obtain a delayed certification to validate that you did have a skilled reason for care during any gaps. Thanks, Jesse. The next question is, will we be required to code therapy days and minutes on the transitional IPA? No, you will not. In fact, therapy days and minutes are not on the IPA at all for the transition or for any IPA thereafter. Therapy minutes and days will still be reported on the five-day for the seven-day look-back period. And while this information is not used for the PDPM case mix methodology, CMS has stated that they're using that information on the five-day to really gauge and monitor provider behavior. And then you will be reporting on the PPS discharge assessment, the therapy minutes and days from the beginning of the stay or since A2400B for that Medicare stay. Very interesting. Thanks, Jesse. The next question is in regard to a late September admission. How would you schedule assessments for a Medicare admission on September 30th? Oh, I love questions that have scenarios. Okay, so if the resident admits on September 30th, we still have to follow all of the OBRA and PPS rules as well as the PDPM transition rules. So the first thing we want to do is an entry, and this will be an admission type entry for September 30th. And since the resident is Medicare Part A and we want to get paid for that one day of Medicare that will be under RUGS 4, we will need a five-day set with an ARD of 930. This will be the assessment that will pay for just that one day of September. And it must have an ARD that's also in September. The, the key with the transition is you cannot use a RUGS for a HIPS code to bill for any days 10-1 or later when we're PDPM. And once we're PDPM, you cannot use a PDPM HIPS code to bill for any days that were prior to 10-1 that required a RUGS for HIPS code. So we must have an ARD for an assessment to establish a HIPS code to bill for that payment model. So resumitted 9.30, the very last day of September, we're going to have our five-day on 9.30. And we're going to complete this assessment to the best of our abilities. Now, we still have 14 days to actually complete the assessment and sign up at Z0500, but we must have the interviews and the data collection done for 9.30. If we're going to have a very short look-back window when, when they invented that same day. Now, in this situation, I would not combine my OBRA admission with the five-day because that ARD on day one of this day is not going to be good for developing the comprehensive care plan. So I would select a date somewhere later during that stay. Now, the other assessment that we have that cannot be combined with the admission assessment is the transitional IPA. The transitional IPA must have an ARD between 10-1 and 10-7, and again, it has to be standalone. But I might select a day, say I decide October 7th. 
I might choose that same day to schedule my admission assessment. I can schedule the ARDs on the same day, however, they would be two separate assessments. Now, the reason I might choose to do this is because any interviews that I complete, the data collection period, the chart reviews, the same information would apply to both assessments. So while I have to duplicate my coding, I don't have to duplicate the entire process of going through the chart review and looking at the look back periods to code those two separate assessments. Since they have the same look back period, the same data and information would apply. So you will likely need three separate assessments, plus your entry tracking record. So the five day on 9.30, your transitional IPA between 10.1 and 10.7, and your OBRA admission, which would also be separate. But again, use some of that strategic scheduling and planning so that hopefully you can reduce some of the workload to make that more streamlined for you and your team. Thank you, Jesse. And you're right, scenarios are a great way to really dive into a tough question. We had another attendee ask, so all of the transitional IPA assessments should be scheduled on October 1st to start payment on October 1st. Is that correct? Oh, that is a frequent misconception that is out there. The transitional IPA can be set on any date, October 1st through October 7th, and it will still start payment on October 1st, regardless of the ARD that you select. The reason people are having this misconception is because your, your normal IPA, not the transitional IPA, any other IPA you schedule thereafter, will start payment on the ARD. But the transitional IPA has special rules. The transitional IPA is required. It has an ARD window of 10-1 through 10-7, and it will start payment on October 1st. Also, you can face payment penalty if you do not set your ARD within the window. If it's late, you could have default payment, or if you miss that transitional IPA altogether, you will be provider liable. Thanks, Jesse. I can see why that is confusing for so many of our members, but you cleared that up well. Let's pause here for a quick commercial break. Are you currently an experienced RACCT professional looking to take your reimbursement expertise to the next level? Then the RACCTA Advanced Certification may be just the program for you. Learn more by visiting www.anac.org forward slash education forward slash RAC-CTA. Welcome back. Let's continue our discussion with Jessie McGill, Curriculum Development Specialist with ANAC, as she answers some of the questions she received during her recent webinar about the PDPM transition and IPAs. Jessie, the next question for you is in regard to Section GG. The attendee asks, my understanding of Section GG is that the information should be gathered prior to the start of skilled therapy. Is this no longer part of the rule for Section GG? This is another situation where we have several different rules that apply to Section GG, depending on exactly what you're coding. So first, I believe the question is regard to the statement that's in the REI manual that the Section GG admission performance should be completed prior to the resident benefiting from treatment intervention. CMS has clarified that this statement is not just in regard to skilled therapy but to all treatment interventions by nursing and therapy. But they also said that section GG assessment period does not need to end just because the resident started therapy. 
and each section GG task needs to be considered individually. So let's talk about some examples. Uh, a resident comes in with a knee replacement. He needs help with bed mobility, transfers, cannot walk, and he cannot do steps, but he does eat and completes his own oral hygiene with setup help only. Therapy starts working with this resident, and by day three, he's taking 10 steps with therapy only. He only started taking those steps as he benefited from the treatment interventions in the task of walking. This was not his baseline or his usual performance at admission. He was only able to do these tasks after working with therapy for three days. But he did not receive any interventions with a goal to improve eating or oral hygiene performance. We can use all three days for the assessment of those areas. So essentially, when you look at these tasks, you're going to look at them individually and you're going to say, okay, what's the resident's performance at the time of admission? And then make that decision. Did this resident benefit from treatment intervention during those three days? And if the resident did benefit from treatment intervention, we're only going to look at the performance before they began to benefit. And if the resident did not have any treatment intervention in the area of those tasks, such as our example, no interventions in the tasks of eating or oral hygiene, and so we're able to use the full three days of assessment for those areas. And this may be different for different residents. Okay, now that only answered part of the question here. And the question is really, when we're looking at this transitional IPA, how are we supposed to answer this question if we're only looking at before they benefit from treatment intervention? And the key here is, is that statement, before benefiting from treatment intervention only applies to column one, admission performance for the section GG performance period. So I'm gonna just say that again, the statement for before benefiting from treatment intervention only applies to column one in section GG, the admission performance. This does not apply to the interim performance, which is column five, or the discharge performance period. So again, that statement only applies when it's the admission, when we're really looking at that baseline before they started benefiting from treatment intervention. Thanks, Jesse. Our next question is also in regard to section GG. Will therapy services providers need to provide input on section GG for a transitional IPA, for example, by completing a new evaluation, even though there is not a clinical change in the patient that warrants a new evaluation? I really feel that sometimes we make Section GG more complicated than it needs to be. We're looking at the resident's usual performance during the interim performance period. If the resident is not currently on therapy caseload and is only skilled for nursing services, then therapy should not be a source of information. We should not ask therapy to complete an evaluation to show the performance of these areas at one point of time for an evaluation during those three days. That would not be reflective of the resident's usual performance. And even if the resident is on therapy caseload, therapy should be one of many sources of information, but not the sole source. Keep in mind how many minutes or hours therapy works with a resident each day versus how many minutes or hours the nurse aide or nurses 
are working with or observing the resident. I'll use a really simple example of eating. During the three-day period, we're going to have three meals for three days, so that gives us nine total meals. If we look at resident number one, speech therapy is assisting with breakfast for all three days. OT is assisting for lunch all three days, and the nurse aides assist at supper. The section GG information for eating should come from speech therapy, occupational therapy, and the nurse aides because they all were involved in that task for each day of those three-day assessment window. However, if we look at another Medicare Part A resident, resident number two, and OT and speech are not involved at all with eating, the nurse aide assists with all three meals, then the nurse aide should be the only source of information during that three-day window. They were the only staff that assisted with those meals all three days. So really looking at each resident and asking who is involved in this task and using that information to determine what your data source is and then using that data source to determine the usual performance during that window. Thanks, Jesse. That's very helpful. The next question is regard to an IPA, not the transitional IPA, but as you have referred to it, just the normal IPA. Can we do an IPA due to improvement in Section GG after the five-day assessment? You can really do an IPA for any reason your IDT deems worthy. The IPA is an optional assessment, and that is that normal IPA. Again, the transitional IPA is required, but the regular IPA after the transition is optional, so you can decide to do it at any time during the Medicare stay for any reason that your facility deems appropriate. So the rules to the IPA is that it cannot be scheduled before the ARD of the five-day, and it must be a standalone assessment. Thanks, Jesse. Here's another IPA question for you. Again, not the transitional IPA, just the IPA. Can we use the same primary diagnosis from the previous assessment? Yes, you can. The IPA is optional. So your team decides to do an IPA based on changes that the resident had in their condition. This may or may not be a change in the primary reason for the Smith stay. This could still be the same or it could change. Thanks, Jesse. The next question is a general PDPM question. Do the non-therapy ancillary comorbidity diagnoses need to be listed on the UB40? Oh, great question. And I'm going to answer this from two different views. First, the view from PDPM reimbursement. Now, in order to achieve the HIPS code, the case mix groups that lead to the HIPS code, your diagnoses must be coded in the appropriate places on the MDS. So you must know for each of those items, what is the source of information? Because for the primary diagnosis for the PTOT and SLP components is I20B. However, some of the SLP comorbidities and NTA comorbidities use the checkboxes in section I, and other items use an IC10 code in I8000. And only those items that are appropriately coded on the MTS will achieve your HIPS code, whether or not they're on the claim, the UBO4 claim. Now, there is one exception, and that is the HIV AIDS diagnosis of B20. This diagnosis is only used from the claim, 
And if you have a Medicare claim that has the B20 diagnosis on it, then those adjustments to your NTA and your nursing components will be adjusted at the MAC level when they provide the reimbursement. So that's the view of reimbursement. Now, when you look at diagnosis requirements on the UBO4 claim, this should really tell the story of the resident. And these may or may not be the same diagnoses that you chose for I-8000 based on what you needed to have coded for the qualifiers for the case mix grouping. Thanks, Jesse. For our next question, an attendee asked, if a Medicare Part A resident discharges and is admitted to the acute hospital on September 30th and returns within three days, does the interrupted stay apply? Or is that true only if they discharge on October 1st or after? Love this question. Okay, but the first part of the question, does the interrupted stay apply if the resident discharges out to the hospital on 930? I'm going to say no, and this is why. On 9.30, we're still following RUGS 4 rules. So as soon as the resident was admitted to the hospital on 9.30, that ended the Medicare Part A stay and the PPS Part A discharge assessment is required. And that ARD of that PPS discharge would be 9.30. That ended that Medicare Part A stay. When the resident came back on 10.2, this is a new Medicare stay. This is not a transition across September to October. We would be starting a new Medicare stay on October 2nd with a new five-day. The variable per diem adjustment schedule would start on 10-2 also, and you would also restart your Medicare certs. So again, if the resident's Part A stay ends on 9:30 or earlier and they come back in October, that will be a new stay and the interrupted stay policy will only apply if they're continuing their Medicare stay through that transition from September 30th to October 1st. Thanks, Jesse. The next question is also in regard to the interrupted stay policy. When the resident goes out to the hospital and returns within the three-day interruption window, are those days counted under their Medicare benefit or are those days skipped? The days when the resident's head was not in bed at midnight are skipped. Keep in mind that we cannot bill Medicare for any days where the resident was not in the facility at midnight. That rule has not changed. This next question ties into the last. Do we still have to do a discharge and PPS assessment when a resident is out for more than 24 hours? Oh, another great question. So this is not a yes or no question. It really depends on what happens during the interruption window. So regardless of the discharge location or discharge status, whether it's planned or unplanned, return anticipated, return not anticipated, if the Medicare Part A resident returns to the SNF to resume the skilled services by 11.59 p.m. on that third calendar day, then it is a continuation of that previous day and the PPS discharge is not done. So essentially, if the resident is also physically discharged from the SNF, you have to also follow your OBRA assessment rules. So your OBRA discharge would still be required. I would recommend opening and completing the required areas of the assessment, but don't submit until after the interruption window. 
If the resident returns within the interruption window, then the PPS discharge is not required and you would mark that over discharge as a interrupted stay. If the resident does not come back within the interruption window, then you will need both the OBRA and the PPS discharge. They can be combined. And so simply you can add that PPS discharge end of Medicare stay to that OBRA discharge and mark the assessment that it, no, it is not an interrupted stay. Now, another thing to keep in mind is that the interruption policy still applies if the resident came off of their skilled services and remained in the facility. However, the interruption window is different in that case. If the resident remains in the facility off of skilled services, the first non-skilled day, the first non-Medicare covered day, is day one of that interruption window. In cases where the resident's Medicare stay ends because of a physical discharge, then that day of discharge is counted as day one of the interruption window. Thank you, Jesse. This has been very informative for our members. Are there any final thoughts you want to share with our listeners today? Yeah, I, you know, I really want all the NACs to realize that you're not alone out there. Every single skilled nursing facility is going through this transition and there's so many questions. Utilize all of your resources and tap into your peers and other experts in the ANAC community boards. If you have questions, I can guarantee that there's others that have the same question or have already sought out the answer. There's an entire network of nurse assessment coordinators who understand your stress and frustration and can help support you through this transition. That's absolutely right, and ANAC is here for you too, supporting you and getting you the information you need to successfully make this transition. Thank you for your time today, Jesse. Listeners, thank you for tuning in to LTC NAC Chat today. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't hesitate to hit the subscribe button so that you never miss a future episode. For more PDPM resources and tools, visit our website at www.aanac.org.